Would you take the breath of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book, Daniel. The sermon today is short. Be like Daniel. Now you can close your Bible and we can end in prayer. (laughs) No. As I have demonstrated in every chapter of our exposition so far, the goal of this book is not to tell us how great Daniel is. The goal of this book is to point us to how great his God is. And it's not easy for us to arrive at that conclusion. It seems the natural reaction to the book is imitation. Like it's the only category we have for it. World Magazine has a Daniel of the year. We have to avoid the error of reducing this book to merely moral example. We also have to avoid the error, particularly in this chapter, of viewing this narrative like a kid's story. My generation learned the Daniel in the lion's den story with, a little, with little felt board pieces. We imagine Daniel as a handsome teenager thrown into a lion's den. He plays fetch with the lions. He snuggles up to them. He uses their mane as his pillow. The lions are like little kittens. No. First off, Daniel wasn't a teenager. He was 90 years old. He walked to the lion's den with an oxygen tank. This is Grandpa Daniel. Secondly, lions do not look like kittens. I have a lot of respect for lions. I have no respect for cats. They they are two different creatures. God made one. Satan made the other. Now, if you're, if you're new here, I'm an equal opportunist in offending people, so just stay around long enough and, and you'll get your turn. Let me just say from the outset of Daniel chapter 6, I am not comfortable doing what many pastors do with this text. I call it equation preaching. Daniel prayed three times a day. If you develop a prayer life like Daniel, God will deliver you from your lion's den. Daniel spent his whole life in a metaphorical lion's den. And although he may not die in this one, ultimately he does die in the lion's den because he never returns home. He dies in exile. Equation preaching is really dangerous because some of you will have a very strong prayer life and yet still be martyred for your faith in Christ. You will not be rescued. And if you make chapter 6 into an equation, you will be disappointed if God doesn't keep his word as you draw your last breath. I have a threefold goal with this exposition. Goal number one is this. I want to highlight the author's intent with the Daniel and the lion's den narrative. Secondly, I want to prove that God is not committed to your comfort. He is not committed to making your path through life smooth. He is committed to sanctifying you and demonstrating his glory through you. Thirdly, I want to show you that Jesus alone, Jesus alone makes sense of Daniel's lion's den. And he alone is the only one who can make sense of your lion's den. So here's how we're going to go at this today. I'm going to walk through the narrative without any points because points break up the narrative. But at the end of the exposition, I have five applications. So let's begin in verse one. It pleased Darius. Now let's stop there. Some say Darius, some say Darius, some say potatoes, some say potato, some say tomatoes, some say tomato. I'm going to say Darius. And, and there's a historical problem with the identity of Darius. He's a very elusive person. 
Who Darius is is a vexing question because he is not mentioned anywhere outside of the Bible. Skeptics immediately say, see, he's a fictitious character in a court fable. But this shouldn't cause us any anxiety about the reliability of the biblical witness. Since after all, there are many gaps in our knowledge of ancient history. Until recent archaeology discoveries in the 1920s, skeptics said Belshazzar in the previous chapter never existed. So because of all of that lack of extra-biblical records, scholars disagree on Darius' identity. And there are basically three choices on the market for who this Darius is. Theory number one, Jay Whitcomb argues that Darius is actually Gaburu from Akkadian texts who served as governor of Babylon under Cyrus. Theory two, Shia says Darius was a, says Darius was Ugbaru, the general who conquered Babylon and served as regent until Cyrus took residence. Theory three, the Assyriologist D.J. Wiseman argues that Darius is the throne name for none other than Cyrus himself. Personally, I hold to this view. Cyrus was his personal name and Darius was his reigning name. He had two names. The name Darius was a title of honor, as was Caesar in the Roman Empire and Pharaoh in the Egyptian Empire. We, we find the word Darius, for example, used on inscriptions in archaeology for at least five different Persian rulers. They're all called Darius. And, and now naturally, some of you are going to go to verse 28, which reads, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And you're saying, well, that sounds like two people there. Actually, the translation could read, So Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, that is, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A similar a similar Hebrew grammatical construction appears in 2 Chronicles 5.26. It's, it's very similar. Two names for one man. So now that we have that out of the way, let's orient ourselves now to the text. Daniel is ruling the largest kingdom ever known in history to that point in time. As you can see on your picture, the empire stretched all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, past modern-day Libya, east towards India, and north towards Turkey. It was a massive kingdom and had a tremendous need for efficient government. There were no telegraphs, emails, or vehicles to keep in check the far-flung regions. So it's not surprising that we find all sorts of bureaucratic officials being appointed in verse 1. Let's pick up in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now what's interesting about King Darius is history records him as an administrative genius. He came in and he reorganized everything. Uh, the satraps, that's kind of a vanilla word which means kingdom protector. The satraps were government officials responsible for protecting against rebellion, uh, responsible for levying taxes, for guarding the financial affairs of the nation. They were basically tasked with balancing the national che checkbook which would be nice for us as well. They create this, this structure created a space for lining their pockets and undercutting power from the king. So to prevent this, Daniel implemented king protectors. 
Verse 2 reveals that Daniel was one of the three king protectors. So 120 kingdom protectors gave account to the three king protectors. Now let's take a step back. Daniel in chapter 1 was a castrated exile. Daniel in chapter 2 was a chief Bible teacher. Daniel in chapter 4 was a colorful dream reader. Daniel in chapter 5 was a, a calm retiree. Daniel's location has not changed. He's still in the city of Babylon. However, a new empire rules the roost as Persia has replaced Babylon. So Daniel is now a cheerful politician. And, and there's a certain irony in Daniel's appointment as one of the three de facto rulers of the kingdom. You may remember the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar's promise to make Daniel third ruler of Babylon. In effect, Daniel received Belshazzar's reward, but just in a new kingdom. Verse 3 reveals that King Darius is contemplating promoting Daniel to a, a brand new created position that he's calling second in command. So the new government structure would look like this. All the nations give an account to the 120 kingdom protectors. The 120 kingdom protectors give an account to the two king protectors. And the two king protectors would now give an account to Daniel. Daniel completely outclassed all the other king protectors. And the thing that made Daniel stand out wasn't the fact that he was an administrative genius or a leader with just the right amount of charisma to make him likable. No, the verse says, Daniel has an excellent spirit. Literally, he has a great attitude about everything. By now, you'd think Daniel would be ill-spirited, angry, bitter. He's there in the kingdom serving one more man in a long line of evil men. If there's anybody in the kingdom that has the right to be a bitter old man, it's Daniel. But he's living out Psalm 92, bearing fruit in his old age. And notice in verse 2, I'm going to substitute some words here just to help us wrap our minds around it. Then the king protectors and the kingdom protectors sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. See, all the bureaucrats hated Daniel because the king loved him. Promotion for Daniel means demotion for the rest of them. And they don't want a foreigner ruling over them. So they form an unholy alliance, a shadow government. And they go for the juggler of the man of God. They want to bring this politician down. So they turn over every stone in Daniel's life looking for something juicy. They started tailing Daniel. They hacked in his computer. They checked his mail. They tracked his credit cards. They were sneaking in his home while he was away, looking under the mattress. There's got to be something somewhere. Surely this Jewish bachelor has some dirt. Scour his dating life. He's lived in Babylon, for crying out loud. When in Babylon do as the Babylonians? They are inspecting his public life from top to bottom. They went all the way back to the time he was appointed as a 16-year-old. They checked his time cards and business expenses all the way through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to his current reign. In the end, they were like LeBron James in the playoffs. They couldn't quite deliver. I've always liked the VeggieTale version of this scene. You know, that theological thriller. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Daniel was played by Larry the Cucumber. 
His enemies are scallion number one, scallion number two, and scallion number three. So scallion number two and three began singing. We could throw them in the dungeon. We could let them rot in jail. We could drag them to the ocean, have them eaten by a whale. Then scallion one begins. We could send them on a camel's back and send them off to Ur with a cowboy hat without a brim and a boot without a spur. Or we could give him jelly donuts and take them all away. And then scallion two yells, or, and the camera cuts to an aerial view of scallion two whispering his plan to the others. And scallion one says, I like it. Scallion three, it's sneaky. Scallion one, and it just, scallion three, Mike, scallion two, work. Verse five is a masterpiece of political deception. Notice the verse. They say, we shall find, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they're now scheming on the basis of integrity. They are going to frame him on the basis of his faithfulness to God. Character assassination didn't work, so they choose conspiracy. And 122 of them, 122 kingdom, 120 kingdom protectors and then two king protectors waltz up to the king and begin shameless flattery. Oh, you most exalted, awesome one. Are, are you bulking up, king? I see the biceps through your robe. I like the pattern on pattern that you're rocking. King, you, you may be the primary reason for global warning. Those, those, those Jordans are on fire. And then after they butter him up, notice what they say in verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions. See, they're elevating him to a semi-divine status. We want to make you god for a month. And this isn't uncommon in history. The Egyptians believed that the pharaohs were gods. The Romans believed that the Caesars were gods. Even the Herods, you'll remember in Acts 12, took the place of gods. So this is not uncommon for monarchs. They presented a united front. Everyone agrees, king. Everyone? Well, what about Daniel? Daniel wasn't asked about this. And notice what these despicable creatures do. The word translated agreement in verse 6 can actually be translated a host of people. And I think that's a better translation. In other words, they packed the king's throne room with so many people he didn't notice Daniel was missing. And he fell to flattery by signing their petition according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Notice verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Let's stop there. You and I, we might have rushed before the king to protest the unfairness of the new law. Or we might have ran home to rant on social media about the new law. Daniel doesn't do either. Daniel has two choices. First, he could comply. And and don't forget, Daniel is right on the brink of being promoted to second in command. Think of all the rationalizations that must have rushed to his mind. I'm the greatest politician and the greatest empire in the world. I mean, I can do more for God alive than dead. It's only 30 days. It's a, it's a minor compromise. I'll just throw on my reversible jersey. 
He, he could have decided to have a month of silent prayer. He could capitulate and go underground for his prayer time. He could go on a noisy horse and buggy ride and pray without being overheard. But let's bring this to us. Friend, what if the President of the United States banned prayer for 30 days? Would that change much of your day-to-day rhythms? Does it strike you as strange that in America, almost no Christians have specific times of prayer set aside each day? So Daniel, he could comply with the law, or secondly, he could simply break the law. And I like this text because there's no speech of inner turmoil recorded. It's just unflinching obedience. He does not question, doubt, or worry. He acts. Notice as verse 10 continues, He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. So this upper room was on the was on the corner of his flat roof. It had latticed windows to allow free circulation of air. And it's important that you see that Daniel doesn't yell out the window, I'm, I'm praying anyway, and I want you all to know. No, he's, he's not flaunting his rebellion. He's not some sort of freedom fighter. He did not go out and purchase a billboard and write an anti-government message on it. He did not spread his prayer mat in the middle of the street in Babylon. He's simply doing what he's always done. He's continuing the godly pattern of devotion that he had carried on his entire life. To him, prayer was more precious than life. The plot thickens as we find out that he is not praying toward Darius. He's praying toward Jerusalem. Darius is neither neither the object or mediator of his prayers. So we're left with the question, why does Daniel pray toward Jerusalem? In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon gives a prayer of dedication at his newly finished temple in Jerusalem. And on that great occasion, Solomon anticipated the day, hundreds of years later, when God's people would sin, would sin so greatly against him that they would be deported from the promised land. And in his prayer, Solomon asked that when that tragedy occurred, God's people would turn back to him by praying towards the temple when they are in exile. So what is happening here? Daniel is literally praying scripture. He's facing Jerusalem three times a day and asking for mercy. And what's he, Jerusalem, what's he seeing? Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple is destroyed. God has abandoned his earthly home. Daniel's physical eyes could see only ruin. But through the eyes of faith, Daniel sees much more. He saw a certain hope. A hope that the temple would be rebuilt. A hope that God would bring them out of exile. He's praying in faith. And it's likely at this point in the story that the king protectors and the kingdom protectors asked the king to sign the decree in the morning. And then they went to Daniel's place at noon to watch him break the law and they ran back to the king after lunch and they know where the king's sympathies lie. So before they accuse Daniel, they remind the king, O king, 
Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Absolutely, said the king, written in stone, like all the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Then notice verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel. Hear the hatred drip from their lips as they just say his name. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction you have signed. But makes his petition. Three times a day. In that moment. The king. Saw the plot. He's been naive to it the entire time. The king protectors never had his interest at heart. They only wanted to get rid of Daniel. And the king tries to find something in past Medo-Persian law that could undo this entire thing. He consults with the experts to see if there's any way around it. There's got to be a loophole somewhere. Perhaps he even thought of covering Daniel with armor from head to toe. But any of that would have been seen as an attempt to undermine his own decree. As the sun is about to set, the conspirators brazenly put pressure on the king. In verse 15, they come by agreement. Again, that word. Huge crowd again. Cowards. Daniel stands alone and these guys can't move without the herd. According to custom, the punishment had to come before nightfall. Time's up. It's time to feed the hungry, hungry lions. As I'm saying hungry, hungry lions, I'm I'm hearing the ice cream truck go by and it's making me hungry for ice cream. Here's here's just a random thought. You may be wondering why there would be dens of lions around in the days of the Babylonians and Persians. Well, the lion hunting was a sport of kings. And so those lions were kept handy for the king's hunting expeditions. Actually, not unlike foxes were kept into the parliament of Great Britain, terminated fox hunting. Lion Lion dens were... Also a nice place of disposing undesirable members of your court. Both in Persian times and in Roman times. And so this is not something that is undocumented in history. It was even used for capital punishment. A cruel but effective means to deter anyone from sinning against the law of the Medes and the Persians. One liberal scholar said that these weren't real lions. It was simply poetic language for the fact that this circle of political colleagues had turned into lions and they were eager to devour Daniel. No, Daniel would have been happy with that poetry. This isn't poetry. These were real lions and he had expected to be their next Happy Meal. The original actually speaks of the lion's pit, not the lion's den. Archaeologists have uncovered near eastern underground lion pits which had an opening at the top that could be closed off with a a large stone. Then there were stairs that went down into one side of the pit. They were dug in square fashion, having a partition wall built down the center which divided the pit in half. Akil, a famous commentator of the Old Testament, said that the wall came furnished with a door which the keeper can open and close from above with a rope. See, this way you could throw food into one side and get all the lions over in that section, close the door, clean out anything that needed cleaning out, and then climb out before the door is opened. 
Historians tell us that lions were purposefully starved to be used as executioners. And most pictures of children's Bibles that, of this scene have maybe two or three lions tops. But there was more than that for sure. Because when you go to the end of the chapter, spoiler alert, a minimum of at least a dozen people, maximum of a hundred people, are thrown into the pit and all of the lions eat them before they even hit the ground. As Daniel was about to be thrown into the pit, his friend, the king, spoke. Daniel, may your God, to whom you are so loyal, get you out of this. And notice in the text how Daniel responds to that. You, you see it in verse, in verse, wait, you don't see it. Daniel says nothing. Why? More than likely, Daniel doesn't think he's getting out alive. He knows God can save him, but he really doesn't think God's going to save him. You see, Daniel wasn't going to make promises God didn't plan to keep. And Christians ought to do the same today. Stop putting words in God's mouth. In verse 17, a stone is rolled over the pit and the king seals the entrance with his seal. This act does not lock the door as much as it prevents tampering with it. If someone were to open the door before the next morning, it would be noticed because the seal was broken. And you can just imagine the joy of these kingdom protectors and king protectors at this presidential ceremony. Finally, this annoying Daniel is out of the way. Once the pit is covered, we don't see a thing until the next day when it's uncovered. And the very fact that we know the end of the story stunts our powers of observation and imagination. Perhaps Daniel in the pit prayed Psalm 57. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. As he opened his eyes, having finished that prayer, he looked straight into the fiery eyes of a ferocious, hungry beast. In our story, the camera doesn't show any of that. The camera just immediately cuts to the palace. And that's where we're picking up in verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. In other words, he said, cancel my schedule. I'm refusing to eat dinner. The text says he refused diversions, which is an Aramaic word that could mean many things. Parties, musical instruments, women, alcohol, dancers, whatever they used to divert the king. Minutes turned into hours. And the frantic king is waiting. Verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. What? Kings don't run. It's very undignified. But Darius takes off. He is clearing obstacles like they were hurdles. And obviously, the king expects the pit to have become a tomb. Verse 20, as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, let, let's pause here. Now, Daniel could have acted prideful. 
He could have said, oh, king, I've got the lions eating out of my hand. This is Bella and this is Fella. This is Puddles and that's Cuddles. Not a gray hair on this beautiful head was harmed. He could have acted prideful. He could have acted angry, lecturing the king. What do you mean am I okay? You fed me to the lions. But none of that. He simply gives the king the royal greeting and then he continues. And and by the way, this is the only time Daniel's words are recorded in the entire chapter. Verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before God. His fearsome lodging turned out to be not a den of lions, but a den of angels. Daniel's evening has been much more pleasant than the king's. You know, sometimes you see all these pictures of Daniel riding around on a lion or rubbing a lion's fur. And I'm just not sure that's how it took place. The lion's mouth had to be shut by an angel. And and, and by the way, that's got to be extended to their paws as well because they could have ripped Daniel to shreds. Now, angels are powerful. One angel took care of 185,000 Assyrians and slew them by himself. So one angel would be plenty. Plenty sufficient. Of course, many skeptics deny the angel aspect of the narrative. They suggest that Daniel didn't get eaten because the lions were, they were simply old. They were like Clarence, you know, the the cross-eyed lion, the toothless lions. Some have said that the lions were drugged. Others believe someone sympathetic to Daniel fed the lions before. It's just amazing what liberal commentators try to do to the Bible. If we let him. Maybe Daniel was a circus ringmaster who controlled lions. There'll be commentaries written now saying Daniel was the, was the tiger king. No. Spurgeon, he, he humorously said, maybe the lions didn't eat Daniel because he was all backbone and gristle. Now I want to unpack a phrase found in the middle of verse 23. I was found blameless before my God. See, what Daniel went through was a trial of ordeal. Ordeals were were broadly known in the ancient Near East. The theology behind an ordeal is that God who knows the heart in a way that a human judge does not, that God will see the verdict through. And the best known trial of ordeal was the water ordeal, where individuals were suspected of a crime and they were thrown into the river. If they died... They were guilty, but if they survived, they were innocent and set free. So Daniel was simply living up to his name, which means God is my judge. His experience in the lion's den confirmed that basic truth. God had judged him not guilty. Go free. And then we arrive at verse 24. I'll not read it. I'll let you read it to your kids for their nighttime story. This no doubt will produce some pleasant dreams. If you think of videos of children falling into a gorilla enclosure is is horrible, you should watch the video of verse 24. Herodotus informs us that such punishment was meted out according to the Persian law. Anyone who made a false charge against someone else should be punished by receiving the same fate they sought for their victim. Tradition said it had to include the children as well because they may grow up with revenge on their minds. 
It was a terrible end. Their gods were unable to deliver them from the lions, whereas Daniel's God had delivered him. And I think it was poetic justice. It it was literally Haman being hanged on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. It was literally Ecclesiastes, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And the chapter ends by Darius pinning a new decree, saying, on second thought, don't worship me. Worship this God of this little conquered nation, Israel. Now I want to try to bring it home with some applications. I have five. Application number one. Daniel's unjust trial points to another unjust trial. It's interesting when you're comparing in the Bible, there are 12 points of likeness between Daniel's trial and Christ's trial. Now, to best illustrate this, I'm, I'm giving you a chart, and it's a big one. You're welcome. Daniel's trial, the government leaders conspire against him. In Christ's trial, the religious leaders conspire against him. No corruption found in Daniel, no corruption found in Jesus. Daniel convicted by trickery, Jesus convicted by trickery. Daniel found guilty of transgressing the law of the Medes and the Persians, Jesus found guilty of transgressing the laws of the Jews. Darius tried to save Daniel. Pilate tried to save Jesus. Daniel descended into the pit. Jesus descended into the grave. Daniel arrested while at prayer in a private location. Jesus arrested while at prayer in a private location. Daniel's grave covered with a stone. Jesus' tomb covered with a stone. The king sealed Daniel's stone. Jesus' tomb was made secure by sealing the stone. The king found Daniel alive early the next morning. Women found Jesus alive early the next morning. Daniel trusted in his God. Jesus trusted in his Father. Daniel prospered after God saved him. Jesus prospered after God saved him. He was highly exalted. Almost identical Trials, but one main difference. Jesus' trial went even deeper than Daniel's. He did not merely suffer the threat of death. He went down into death itself. Early Christians would decorate their graves with Daniel and the lion's den pictures or carvings. Why would they do that? They saw in the lion's den a prefiguring of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Lowered into a lion's den of death, emerges early the next morning, alive, vindicated by his God. See, this isn't merely a story for kids. It's also a story for funerals. Although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty ones. And there was no angel to comfort him in his pit. On the contrary, he was left in the blackness utterly alone, abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. When Jesus came forth from the when Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. No one else was saved by God's deliverance of Daniel. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty company of people 
who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people, the divine judge says, not guilty. You all may go free. Application number two. God has a track record. God has a track record of delivering his people from pits. You may remember Joseph was thrown into a pit. But God saw him in that pit and brought him out. Later, Joseph was thankful for the pit. Israel went into the pit of slavery in Egypt. And God saw them in that pit. And he eventually brought them out. Later, they were grateful for the pit. In the fullness of time, God's saving power took on deeper dimensions. Like a steel locomotive hurtling through history, God brings his people out of pit after pit after pit. And that is actually the author's intent in the passage. In Daniel 1, God's people are in a human trafficking pit. And God whispers, I've not forsaken you. In Daniel 2, God's people are in a fearful pit. And God whispers, I will rescue you. In Daniel 3, God's people are in a fiery furnace pit. And God whispers, I am right here with you. Chapter after chapter, God is laying gospel brick after gospel brick. And it culminates here when Daniel is in another pit and he hears another whisper, Trust me. Trust me in this pit. So will you? Will you trust this God in your pit? Friend, you should because he has a history of delivering his people from the world's pits. God will take you into the middle of a pit to show you that he is the pit's master and that he can lift the frightened. He can lift the frightened to safety. You know, whenever I'm going through a difficult time, a pit, I'm always encouraged by this thought. You've never met a pit that will outlast you. You've never met a pit that will outlast you. Gain that perspective. Application three. Jesus has delivered you from the ultimate lion's den, from the only lion that could really eat you. Now you do realize that you live in a world filled with lions, right? And not all of them are caged in pits. You may have people attempt to sabotage you at work. But you can only deal with your little lions if you know that Jesus has dealt with your ultimate lion. I can only deal with debt if I know that Jesus has dealt with my ultimate debt. So you'll never be able to deal with your little lions in this world unless you come to grips with the fact that Jesus shut the mouth of the great lion called Satan. And he can accuse you no more. Application four. There will always be tension between the laws of man and the laws of God. One commentator said, on the one hand we have Darius, ruler of all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, and the enforcer of the law of the Medes and the Persians. On the other hand, we have the God of Daniel working signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, the enforcer of the Jewish law. 
And the kingdoms overlap and the question of sovereignty has to be resolved. Which law is supreme? I want to give you a a chart, another one. I want to give you a chart to show you this common theme in the book of Daniel. Let's compare two chapters. Daniel chapter 3, that's the fiery furnace. And then Daniel chapter 6, that's the lion's den. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar signed a law that people needed to worship a golden statue. In Daniel 6, Darius signed the law for people not to pray to anyone except for him. And the truth, when you see these two together, is you should avoid false religion and you should pursue true religion. In Daniel 3, three people stand when everyone else is commanded to bow. In Daniel 6, one person kneels when everyone else is commanded to stand. Daniel 3, they refuse to participate in idolatrous religious practices. Daniel 6, he refuses not to participate in proper worship. And, and then notice in both stories, a common phrase, it's, it's, translated in, it's translated maliciously accused, but in the original language, it's literally eight pieces. They, they tried to eat pieces of the Jews. They tried to eat pieces of Daniel. So the similarity there. In both stories, they're thrown into a furnace, thrown into a pit. The, the word into there is remote. They're thrown remote furnace. They're thrown remote pit. In both stories, they're saved by an angel. In Daniel's story, Daniel, in Daniel 3, Daniel is missing. In Daniel 6, the three friends are missing. In both stories, there is no harm to anyone. And in both stories, God is exalted. And friends, here's the guiding principle. You must betray your government before you betray, betray your God. God expects your commitment even when it costs you. There will be times when you need to exercise civil disobedience because as Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. For the devoted follower of King Jesus, Caesar will always lose to Christ. So how do you balance the tension? So how do you know? Let me give you one example. When the state says you can't preach the exclusivity of Christ... Christ is the only way to heaven. Christianity is the only true religion. When they say you can't preach the exclusivity of Christ, or they say you can't call out certain sins because it's hate speech, then that is when you need to disobey the law. Now let me, let me swing over here because there's, a, there's another one that is close, but I don't think it's the same, and there's a tension there. Public schools do not allow public prayer in the classrooms anymore. So if we obey and say, okay, we're not going to pray in classrooms anymore, are we caving in to the law of the Medes and the Persians? I don't think so. Notice that Daniel was not forbidden to pray in a certain location like the court or a classroom, but forbidden to pray at all, even in private. Indeed, it is silly to even imagine Daniel during his early years of Babylon insisting on prayer before the opening of his Akkadian class on magic. In our discussion panel after the sermon, we're discussing, they're going to discuss some of the COVID restrictions on churches. And what is the tension there? Because we've got good people who love the Lord saying a couple different things. And so they're going to, they're going to unpack it. The last application is this, application number five. Be ready to face persecution. Be ready to face persecution. When they burned Polycarp 
at the stake in Smyrna in AD 155. He had been a Christian for 86 years. And before they lit him on fire, they called on Polycarp and they said, Deny the Lord and save your life. In quiet assurance and with a steady voice, this is what he said. Eighty-six years I have served this God. And he has never done me any harm. Why should I forsake him now? Nate Saint was martyred as a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador in 1956. His willingness to die for Christ really shouldn't surprise us considering these words. And I quote from him. The way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we're taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face the same expendability, end quote. And I would simply add to Nate here, every follower of the crucified Nazarene should have the same sense of expendability. Because Jesus is worth it. Forty years ago, North Korean congregations were herded out into the street so that under the orders of Kim Il-sung, they could be run over by bulldozers. Thousands of believers crushed to death. You see why I don't want to turn chapter 6 into an equation? One million Christians are persecuted worldwide in places like North Korea and Saudi Arabia and Iran. Thousands of precious sons and daughters of Zion have been left to rot in a dungeon or have been slain upon a mountainside or have perished by a bullet. New Testament scholar Bob Stein has worked a lot with persecuted churches and he discovered that among the persecuted church around the world, you know what their favorite book of the Bible was? It was Daniel. Why? Why? Because it teaches that in the end, God wins. I'll leave you with a quote from Ignatius, who said, I am the wheat of God, and am ground by the teeth of wild beast, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.